What's happening, crew? Welcome back to the Disco Posse podcast. You are about to listen to a really fantastic conversation with David Frank. David's the founder and the CEO of Stonehaven, a global capital markets fintech platform. But really, that is just a tiny piece of the incredible story and way in which David approaches things. This is just an absolute wall-to-wall fantastic conversation about leadership principles and truly engaging with humans and and how taking the the sort of platform world and and what he did in in finance, but just why and how does he do this with people? It is such a people industry. Everything's a people industry. David is just such an inspiration and just came to the conversation ready to listen, learn, and, and is curious. I'm always just absolutely enthralled by people who are continuously curious. I, I hope that I could be as good as the amazing folks like, like David who are out there. And if you don't get a chance to check out all of the links below, then please do make sure get curious about the folks that make this podcast and our world happen. And I've got incredible supporters and sponsors like the fine folks at Shift Group. If you've got a technology startup, if you've got any kind of technology company, then you really need an avid, engaged Salesforce that can do elite work and truly connect with customers. JR and the team at Shift Group, that's shiftgroup.io, easy place to go. And you can save listening to me, you can fast forward 15 seconds. But anyways, the point is, JR and his team are taking elite, elite professionals in sports and turning them into elite technology sales professionals. This is something that's incredible. The work that they're doing about engaging with folks that are coming out of the, the college sports field or professional sports and they're moving back to, you know, out of retirement and, and into business. It's just an incredible program. Not only are you getting elite people, but you're getting a complete program wrapped around them. Continuous education, helping you to build culture. Look, the economy's rough and it may get rougher and you need to have people leading your sales field that can do results, that can really connect with people. So JR is just such a, a fantastic person who really knows how to, how to drive engagement and create great programs. So go check it out, shiftgroup.io. Oh, hey, and speaking of things can get pretty grim, you got data out there and it is at risk. Everything's at risk. You got ransomware, you got just people hitting delete. Goodness gracious. Every workload you got run on the cloud, on premises, in your data center, whether it's Kubernetes, whether it's whatever it is, you need to protect that data. You need to protect that data down to the file level, out to your Office 365, into your Salesforce, everything, whatever you got, it's at risk. Get rid of risk. Get Veeam. So the folks at Veeam Software are doing amazing stuff. In fact, they've got their technology conference coming up called Veeam On. That's a pretty cool name. I like that one. So get Veeam On. Do it. Uh, so go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Let's know old Disco sent you over there. Plus, we're just amazing people. Lots of great free resources, lots of great tools, and, and lots of amazing people. So go check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. All right, that's enough of the ads. Let's get to the good stuff. This is David Frank on the Disco Posse podcast. Hi, this is David Frank, CEO of Stonehaven. Welcome to our podcast on Disco Posse.
Well, uh, definitely, David, thank you very much. This is, it was an easy, you know, hey, you know, would you like to have David on the podcast? It, it was, I was hitting reply yes, you know, before I even got too far into your bio. And looking at what you do is super thank exciting. You. You've got a pretty, pretty neat background. And also you're tackling a space that I super passionate about, which is, which is fun. So we'll talk about you will talk about Stonehaven. We'll talk about the industry at large, the world of financials, which are capital markets are in an interesting place. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Um, but before we jump in, uh, let's do a quick intro to let people know who you are and where they can find you online. And then we'll, uh, we'll talk about all things Stonehaven and capital markets. Sure. So I want to do a quick kind of summary of who my my background or uh, where to find. Yeah, me. yeah. Just, uh, you know, just and, and again, if, if people want to get connected to it's always handy to uh, sure. drop any socials and stuff. We'll have links as well, of course, to to, you know, any uh, any contact methods as well. So, uh, again, David Frank grew up in Denver, Colorado, um, grew up as a, a skier, mountain biker with an awesome family uh, and uh, went to University of Michigan, started my firm Stonehaven almost after graduating at a, a whopping one year uh, working at another investment bank called Robertson Stevens before it imploded. Uh, it was the actual the largest investment bank at the time in San Francisco. And I've been on an entrepreneurial journey ever since then, ever since 2001, and been building my firm Stonehaven first as uh, more of a deal maker, uh, raising capital for various asset management firms and companies then evolving into becoming more of a, a leader of teams, uh, raising capital and executing on transactions. And then over time, building a platform uh, for other companies and capital markets, investment banks and placement agents. Uh, and that was really where in 2018, about five years ago, we pivoted to becoming a pure play fintech platform focused purely on building an operating system and a collaboration network for uh, these deal makers, which we call affiliate partners. So, uh, and if people want to find me, uh, by far the best way is uh, LinkedIn. Um, uh, I definitely post actively. My company does too. Uh, I technically have a Twitter handle, but I don't really post it all. So yeah. uh, probably a poor way to follow me, follow me is on Twitter, but uh, you can definitely follow me on LinkedIn. And uh, that has all my ways of reaching out right there too. Also our, our company website, stonehaven-llc.com. It's always funny when you've got like we have to sort of have social presence everywhere, but it's it's always good to quite often you find one network is just like auto posting like we like LinkedIn is probably one of the most, you know, important places for me these days because I've found that there's more interactivity going on, which was interesting because I really sort of used it as a you know, post and ghost type of uh, situation. I would, mm -hmm. I would have content that would go from my blog or from the podcast and I wasn't really sifting through the timeline. Um, but yeah, once I, yeah, we found, I found LinkedIn to be the best platform for us. I mean, what I found is the, among the people that I really care about, which are investment bankers, placement agents, asset management firms, um, growing companies and the entire investor universe, they're all active on LinkedIn and following it. And um, Twitter is interesting. There's a lot more opinionated kind of uh, 
uh, content on Twitter. I think it's a great place for me to watch and at some point we might engage in. But LinkedIn is, is a place where I know, just as an example, on our platform, we have almost 100 uh, affiliate partners, investment bankers and placement agents. But if I post, I think over 50% of them will see the post within 24 hours, even without us sending an email to them, which means our kind of universe, uh, if, our, if our current base of people are on that platform, I think the people that we also want to attract are also living on the same platform. And anyway, it's it's a great place. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times where I haven't seen somebody in several years and I'll run into them at a conference and they'll just say, you know, they'll provide commentary. I'm like, wow, you guys are really scaling. And I had, I really didn't, uh, I've been following you guys and yet they've never commented. They've never liked a single thing. Um, and so it kind of shows you that some of the people out there, even if they're not engaging, um, you know, really are kind of tracking you um, in some way out there. So that's been a, a fun thing to watch. Yeah, it's the interesting thing of how do we, you know, really understand what the behaviors are of, of a, you know, how do you go from audience to participants and sort of from participant to active participant? There's stages of, of social interaction. And it was interesting that we would have in-person stuff was always seen as like the, the model was, you know, social networks were meant to be able to carry the in-person model into an online platform. Yeah. And then with the last couple of years and, and everything sort of being shaken up in, in how we interact with, with other humans. Now, even going back to it, I find the networks have switched a lot in, mm -hmm. you know, more readers are occurring, but like you said, you can, you can find somebody who's like really actively keeping track of what's going on with you but then chooses not to interact. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think- I, I love it when somebody comes out of the woodwork though, and and just somebody you haven't talked to in a while and likes or comments. I mean, it's really kind of interesting when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. And I find it actually happens. We There's different kinds of content we're putting out there. We're uh, programmatic about hosting when we add people to our platform. Um, we added about 40 people to our platform last year. So there's a constant flow of new posts. We're also programmatic about putting out technology developments quarterly, uh, the mandates we're taking on. We're right now onboarding at about 100 clients per year pace. And so once a quarter, we'll post kind of aggregate level data on what we're doing. But actually, a lot of the most interesting kind of engagement comes from the more personal types of posts that are more about me and not about the firm. And that's actually something I'm, I'm looking forward to about the podcast format, which um, takes a little bit you know, more of a deeper view into the the journey of entrepreneurship and not just the kind of metrics coming out of it. Um, so I, I like, uh, I'm looking forward to this kind of a format too. What, and this is sort of the, how this podcast came to sort of grow in, I mean, I was treated like this is the goal of having a conversation that I'd like to sit down beside. If I heard two people having this discussion, at a conference or at a lunch table, you know, somewhere at a restaurant, you'd find yourself like, like kind of doing one of those, <laughs> like you would not be concentrating on what's in front of you because something beside you was sounded compelling. And that was really the goal. And I started with that idea. And it was funny that it started very tech centric and, and like get into the bits. And I thought that was going to be the most important thing that audiences would tap into because that's kind of my, my yeah. people, right? We're nerds. And then I realized that when I got into stuff about human productivity and and managing your your time and and entrepreneurship, 
all of a sudden I got way more feedback and I got way more interaction and it was interesting and all of a sudden the listenership started shooting up like crazy and I thought, oh wow. So I, I kept, you know, moving the moving the bar a little bit and not purposefully to try and grow an audience, but to listen to what was being told to me as being valuable. And I thought if I'm proud of it and people are listening, then then we're in pretty good shape. And that's makes been, a ton of sense. Yeah. yeah I mean, and it, you coming people from want a technical... the story. They want the why. That's really the thing is like yeah. when they see and they're like like your the platform you've got is fantastic. But the how you built it is, in fact, what people want to get. Like when Mr. Beast, you know, as a YouTube creator, up getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention since sort of last summer. Obviously, years of stuff going into it, but then all of a sudden he was everywhere, and everybody just wanted to know how much money you're making. Like, oh my, how much money do you make per video? How much money do you make a month? And they really latched onto it. And then to hear him recently on more podcasts where they're like, "How do you manage your day? How do you manage your team?" And 100%, I did yeah, really and it makes sense. You coming from a technical architect background to a technical marketer, it would make sense. The next step in the journey would be like more technical podcast. Um, and similar with me, you know, I'm, I'm more of a um, hardcore entrepreneur and operator. And I think that's like your go to. But I think peeling the layer back another layer uh, is a lot more interesting for people who are also building businesses. Um, yeah. I think the fun is when I always tell people, you know, like I like to give away the secrets so that somebody else can use them and become successful with it. So hopefully they can find, you know, and, and I always tell people that if you go on 20 to 30 minute podcasts, you know, and they're great, like obviously they've got great audiences, they've got a specific target audience, they, it's a great way to get out there. But for me personally, I always found that I hear somebody on five podcasts and they're the same five podcasts because mm -hmm. they kind of get, you have to have the introductory questions. You have to learn about the person. You have to talk about their company. You have to talk about, you know, you just start to touch on, oh, now that we know about the company and your product, you know, how did you come to solve this problem? And then it gets right to the point where it's about to be really interesting. And they're like, okay, great. Well, it's been nice talking to you. And, and so what I would find is that at about 30 to 35 minutes, everybody has a set of like automatic answers to most questions because you say that you have to answer it all the time especially as a founder you always have to answer the same set of questions what's the problem space you're in who's your audience who are the personas how did you get here where's the growth path what's next like we we get that out of the way in 30 minutes and then at that point you say like oh it's interesting that you know based on sort of the answers you've given I, what I'm hearing from you is something right I you capture something in the discussion and then you ask about it so it's not some kind of a canned thing sure. that you read off the website. And at that point they go, huh, that's a good question. Yeah, agreed. And, and I, at that I, point, I think you're I'm in a, the real podcast. I like to be, <laughs> yeah, I love to be a student of entrepreneurs. And um, I like to surround myself with a lot of entrepreneurs. In fact, uh, an organization, YPO, which is an organization of people who are running businesses, has been a great format to do that. Um, and I always try to surround myself with that. I mean, we support over 200 companies. Um, and every one of them has an entrepreneur or team of entrepreneurs running them. And so the, the journey of entrepreneurship is, is actually the most interesting thing to study for me. And, and in fact, I'd always pick learning about uh, the journey of an entrepreneur or, or anyone who I think has built anything. Um, and you can build things in all kinds of domains. I'd, I'd always choose that over reading a, a fiction book or watching something in fiction. Not always, but usually. Yeah. Uh, because there's just so much uh, in the actual lived experience. It's so fascinating that I also identify with in my 
daily life and draw inspiration from. What do you think would be most interesting to kind of talk about today as far as kind of my journey that you'd love to understand better from, from what you've seen so far and learned so far? I'd like to find out what's missing in your LinkedIn. So this is always the interesting <laughs> thing as I look, because when we, the LinkedIn generally is the, it goes from school to, you know, what's, what's first, what's next, what's now. And like, you can generally see that progression and your first to what's next was short and what's now was rapid. Like, so to the outside viewer, they would look and say, wait a minute, you were in school and then you launched a company in a very short progression. You obviously you talked about that the first place you went to and they sure. ran into difficulty. So to the outside person, they'd be like, wow, David, you were like, you were built for this. I'm like, so that's, that's cool. It's, it appears that way. And you obviously you're successful in what you're doing, but 22 year overnight success, right? That's it. Right. So what's, what drew you, you know, how did you capture enough knowledge to be able to launch what you have with Stonehaven based on what would seem like a, a, a relatively short journey? <laughs> Well, the beauty of starting a business when you're 23 is you really don't know anything and um, you can just start figuring it out rapidly. And I think I both was uh, at a disadvantage and an advantage because I don't think early on I really had um, a true mentor who actually was working in my business. I, I made it a real point to develop a lot of relationships with people in the industry, but um I think it's a it's a falsehood that starting a business, you know everything you're going to know going into it. I think you need to have a combination of motivation, grit, and the ability to continue to evolve um, in order to build a business. But we're partly, I actually view Stonehaven today as still at chapter one. I mean, because I actually think um, the pivot we made four or five years ago into a fintech firm really is, is we're early in this journey. And I'm actually just really pumped about where we're at. But on the other hand, uh, the foundation I laid in industry building kind of as a person, somebody who was raising capital and executing on that, I think I had to really figure it out. I mean, just as an example, right when I got in the business, I realized you had to go on roadshows um, to go raise capital. And at 23, no one was really teaching me what to do in any real way. And so um, I started going on roadshows by myself without CEOs and management teams. I just thought that I had to know these companies, and they were largely at the time we were raising money for asset management firms uh, and still do. We're very big in that business. We've expanded there a lot. And I just thought I had to be the expert on those products. And I had no shame in reaching out to every institutional investor I could think of. And lo and behold, if you have a lot of confidence, a lot of people would take meetings and start doing business with you. And so I think it really was an evolution as far as like, you know, what they see today is is really kind of many, many pivots and going through all kinds of evolutions as a business and figuring it out. And I think it was from being in industry and and really understanding the use cases and needs of the people that we actually uh, now serve as somebody who was out in the market. Um, that I think has been foundational to then building a platform to serve uh, those investment bankers and placement agents. And I think that's a real different journey than somebody who comes at it from an MBA program and they might have some tech background and they think they're going to go build a vertical uh, vertical software business in an industry they haven't really operated in, or they might've been a consultant in, or they've done other similar things. But I think there's a lot of actually 
uh, deep knowledge from understanding the friction points um, and other things that you can solve for. That's hard to do if you've never truly operated in the business. I'll, I'll pause there because there's a lot more we could dive into. Yeah. And I'll say as anecdotally looking at my a lot of my own experiences, I think the some call it youthful exuberance, right? But ultimately what it is, is the lack of, of awareness of fences and boundaries. The idea that you come at it without a presupposition that this is a barrier that you should, that that's a barrier, like you don't, not even a barrier that can be crossed, but like you have, you understand the, the fences. I've always approached it as a, hey, I'm just, I'm going to do my thing. And then people say, you know, you can't do that. I find that actually inspiring. I'm like, all right, challenge accepted. It, my first experience playing poker was funny. I worked at a, ironically enough, financial mm -hmm. services firm and was playing, uh, it was before our holiday party and a bunch of equity traders. So these are, you know, folks that they, they one would say they bet every day, <laughs> but they're, they're move money around on these tables very easily. But I had no attachment to the value of of a hand. I had no, I understand generally how it goes, but I'm a people person. So it was funny here. I was playing cards and you know, they'd be playing and, and there's this one guy, he was like, he's a, like stats, math. Like he knew every, he knows the probability of every hand. He knew everything about like exactly the science and the math behind what was about to happen. And it ended up being me and him heads up at the end after 30 people coming down to me and him, I had never played poker with anybody else other than watched it online and figured out, okay, now I kind of get how it works. We're playing Texas Hold'em. And it gets to the end. And it was amazing to watch sort of the frustration. And I, uh, I'll say I'm a little bit, a little bit evil because I kind of started to, to nudge it a bit more because I knew I could put him off of his game, but he kept like, I would, I would play a hand and he, I would, I would, I would always show the cards and he'd be like, you know, and he'd look at you like, he would just be so angry. It's like, there's, you shouldn't have bet. Like, it doesn't make sense. Why did you do like, and the whole thing that made it impossible for him to understand me being successful was that I was not following the rules. I was not following the science. I was not following the math. I was like, he's like, and I was like, cause I'm playing a people game. I had generally no mathematics, but I'm also yeah. dyslexic. So I'm, I haven't got a shot at keeping track of how many cards are left or whatever. I was just like, I kind of know what's going on. I figured out a couple of his tells. He was pretty good at not giving them away. But in the end, I ended up winning the tournament, much to his frustration. He's like, and it, that was it. Like this idea that there's no way you should be doing what you're doing because you didn't follow the rules. I'm like, that's exactly why I was successful because I didn't see the rules or when you gave me the rules, I saw where I thought, huh, why is that a rule? And maybe there's a reason we can go beyond it. I think it's very similar to how we've been building an operating system for capital markets. And a lot of the software and workflows we build are pretty much everywhere in finance. They are human workflows with emails, with lots of manual steps, with people involved that have to actually evaluate things. And I think um, a lot of people would say, for example, you can't systematize how you form a contract or how you do due diligence or how you do other things like that. And I think that's probably true for a portion of it. But I think what we're always trying to say is just what exactly is the logic that goes into each step and then building software around it. And that's really kind of, uh, for example, enabled us. I remember early on, we said, how could we, with limited 
resources, onboard so many clients and go through contracting and due diligence. And we were constantly trying to say, well, what are the problems we hit every stage and how could we anticipate those problems in building software around contracting and due diligence as an example. And that's not typically how it's done. It's usually always done on a very, very manual basis. And then the more we've gotten into that, the more we've built code around it and process and workflows. And it's really been value added for everyone. I think that's also true for how we've built data models. So I think the traditional model with data is that every capital raiser is out there building their own data set for their investors. And what we saw was an opportunity. We had a lot of people on our platform, each of which were building their own kind of CRMs and their own data sets on investors. But no one really had the economies of scale to build a real tech platform around the CRM architecture. And no one knew how to kind of tie together all the data to combine what would be great to share and what would be great to keep private. And it was through that that we essentially formed what we call a crowdsourced data model where all of our affiliates operate in one common set of investor profiles with the exception of high net worth individuals. And it's not been done before that I've ever seen where different companies operate with their main data source uh, in a community source data model. And so it was a lot of things that, like you kind of said, because no one had ever told us how we had to do it. And since we weren't copying another business model, we started creating it. And then you have to kind of show the, com the, the confidence and conviction around that and build the team to execute on it and really help them see around the corner of that vision. And then before you know it, people start actually uh, believing in it and it starts to kind of work. Um, and then you have a, an avalanche of, of next steps, problems you have to solve for, but I think not having those kind of, not viewing myself as having those constraints and bootstrapping where we haven't had any outside investor or anyone else except our management team really constantly saying, where do we want to go? How do we want to evolve? I think has been very helpful to us. Um, although I think there's a lot to having a board that we'd like to also kind of pursue, but I think there's um, that lack of constraints um, to create something that doesn't exist yet, I think is is part of what the, the fun of, that's part of the fun of being an entrepreneur. And the thing that you you're, you brought up is interesting because it we, we hear sort of the phrase of selling pickaxes to coal miners, right? So the, the reason often why nobody has solved the problem in the way that you've solved it is because they sort of get to the point where they're building this data set and then their problem that they're solving is generating revenue off of those investors. For you to be able to step back and say, well, what if we could look at this as a broad uh, as a broad industry and can we pull together is there now effectively like that's great all you are all coal miners and you're fantastic at what you do but i can make all of you individually better by collectively looking at how you are each solving the problem and it's really difficult for people to to get that thing because they often would just say like hey if i can figure this out then i could just start my own investment firm and they often are just too close to the problem and they can't step back from it. So your ability to sort of go to first principles approaches and also to think at this macro sort of meta level view is what allows you to be ruthlessly pragmatic on this is the problem that I think we can solve. And we're yeah, going to think this. You know, I, I think the the world that we build around, which are these investment bankers and placement agents, people who are capital markets professionals, their core competency is really on sourcing great deal flow 
and then engaging with the marketplace to go execute on that deal flow to, to achieve the objectives of their companies. What they don't have a core competency in necessarily, but it's kind of a, a peripheral competency, but not where they want to focus on, is all the kind of mechanics around the data models that can really make them be efficient. And so that starts with how do I source deal flow? How do I analyze what's the best opportunities? How do I contract with it? How do I do diligence at speed? How do I identify the right target market of investors? And then from there, how do I best run pipeline management process? Or if I'm running a team, how do I build the sales architecture around that? And then what we've also done in that kind of a ecosystem is we've enabled uh, these independent affiliate partners of ours to then collaborate. And so I think that's also where there's a network effect where um, I think everyone wants to collaborate in our space or most people want to collaborate in our space, but there's always been such, there's been friction points that have been hard to solve for. And I think that that's a good role for somebody like Stonehaven where we can think about building a community. It's hard for one person in a network to say I'm going to solve for all the friction points across the network. And that's why it takes somebody who's looking at the overall ecosystem and solving for, all right, how do we form a syndicate on our, on our platform? What are the kind of boundaries of what makes that successful or not successful? Um, where, um, what are the workflows in it? So there's investor approvals, there's pipeline management, there's project management, there's how do you close transactions? There's how do you um, accelerate people who are doing a good job of it? And how do you, um, put boundaries around people who are maybe falling down on a part of their pipeline. And so that's been a lot of where we've been building. It's kind of building these network uh, architectures around a community. And I think as we've done that, it's created a new business model for the industry where traditionally in our space, if you are running, let's say, a five-person investment bank, you might be working on four to six deals max, and that's all you can do. And if you're in, engaging with an investor who might want something peripheral, so like let's say you're raising money for a fintech deal from a family office, and that family office is maybe full in their allocation to that, but they might want to do something in prop tech. If you don't, if you haven't sourced something in prop tech, there's you can talk to them about it, and maybe your friend has something in prop tech, but there's nothing for you to do. And on our platform, you can uniquely reach across the community and directly engage with somebody else in the platform who is running a prop tech deal, instantly jump into that um, syndicate or that group that's doing that deal and have all the workflows built in to go turn around to your client the next day and be live on that deal as well. And so I think that's the kind of space of innovation where it enables somebody who's running four to six deals to now have access to 200 plus deals um, to then go execute, where they might have a a primary, the arrows in their quiver might be four to six primary arrows in their quiver, but they have another, you know, hundred plus arrows in their quiver they can draw if that's the right opportunity for them. And so that's that's applicable intra-asset class and it's applicable across asset classes. So it could be somebody who primarily raises capital for real estate deals, um, but then has opportunities in venture or in other areas that they want to go after. And on the flip side of it, enables somebody who can originate a fantastic deal um, and maybe can raise half the capital for it. But to really be successful on that, they need to go identify other people in their network that can help them close that deal. Um, and that evolution of a business model that enables collaboration, I think is a great place for somebody who can take a step back and solve for bigger use case problems 
has a big role. It's not like just a pop and spoke thing where you're solving things just for one person. Part of our product is essentially our community um, and then how we curate that community and the workflows around it. And that involves both technology, um, which we build a lot of, but it also involves a lot of non-technology, you know, monthly calls, events, actually like really building relationships with humans. Um, so that's really important to us as well. The uh, looking at the two-sided marketplace as a really interesting place to sit. And it's funny looking at my own, you know, what I'm with my team, what we're building, it became very obvious, like the strength is, you know, to grow the on the on the revenue side is obviously you would need to acquire clients. But what we were able to do is to look at it as a broad two sided marketplace challenge of, you know, can we build the provider side as well, and then sit in the middle and gather intelligence based on data, so that each engagement we have can get better. And it was a, for me, that was a, my sweet spot of what I love to do. And then a, a word you brought up a couple of times, and I, I've, I sure. love this word but I'm always curious on how people would define it. Community. Mm. Yeah. What, what, community. Would, what would you describe as, you know, when someone says, what, what do you mean by community? So what that means to us is we're essentially a platform for the gig economy of independent, independent financial intermediaries. So essentially we have over 50 businesses operating on our platform. And what that means, and, and then those companies have been supporting over 200 end clients. So those 50 companies made up of about 100 people, they, what community means to them is uh, several things. One, the ability to collaborate on deals. So either origination or distribution synergies. Um, and that's through essentially forming syndicates uh, together. Two is I think the sharing of best practices and um, just insights into what's going on in the industry. And so, for example, we host quarterly sub-community calls. We have them for real estate, hedge funds, direct deals, closed-end funds. And that's close to just the community. And the entire point there is to say, like, where can I, as somebody in the community, um, reach out and say, hey, here's a problem I'm facing, and what are these are my leads and needs. Does anyone have any potential ways they can help me on this specific problem? Um, or I see an opportunity and I'm trying to figure out how to tackle it. Who else can help me tackle it? And having that ability to do it is really important. I think I think part of it's just part of the human condition, too, of wanting to have friendships with people that are doing something similar to you. And I think, um, you know, one way of thinking of it is we're all competitors. But the reality is, even if. Uh, if all of the people on our platform captured 1% of the market share, that'd be tens of billions of dollars in capital market transactions. So, you know, the reality is that they're more peers and they can succeed together. Um, and then I think also that community, um, part of what it's always doing is giving, we're as a, at the hub of that, collecting a lot of the best practices constantly and writing what we think are best practices for everything. So how to contract, how to um, structure, restructure deals, how to uh, run a sales process. And so part of our role is constantly seeing these things and either building it back into our operating system or creating it in knowledge. And um, we try to do that a lot. Uh, and I, I've actually found that 
the desire to be part of a community is as big of a desire as actually the tech platform we've built. And so it's kind of a, a dual offering um, that people are looking for. This is the, it's the interesting merger. I think I find the people that understand technology the best are people that understand people the best. Because what we're effectively doing with any technology is solving a human problem. We're rarely solving a technical problem. Like under there's massive technical challenges to do the solution, but in the end, you have to understand what is the outcome that they're after, what is the, you know, what is the friction that keeps them from reaching that outcome? How do we codify and represent that solution? Like, so what's the, the way they solve it today? Mm -hmm. What's the cost of doing that? And then sort of assessing that, that thing. And like you said, then at the same time, being able to look to the broader community, a large group of people that have a common interest in a, maybe a sort of community of practice where they're doing the same thing. And then what I find, like you said, competitive behaviors within communities are in fact fantastic because we often love sort of getting, we will have sharing as much as we can with people who are in the same business because we realize it's a massive market. There are yep. lots of opportunities. And in fact, the more we share with a careful, you know, sort of boundary on, on sort of specifics of maybe, you know, we're not sharing our <laughs> Rolodex, if I can say an old thing that the youth today would say, you know, your Plaxo, your LinkedIn, whatever. If you're, you're not giving away your contact list, but you're giving, you can share the method. And it doesn't mean that you're giving away your secrets. It means you're helping people to understand because if, they then are successful, there will be eventually a, a reciprocal feeling, even like psychologically, there's reciprocation. If I give you something, you will 100%. by nature want to share something back. And those are less- I found something similar, by the way. So it's both within Stonehaven or community there. And I've also been part of forming a group of about 25 CEOs of investment banks uh, through YPO, uh, where I'm, I'm a forum moderator for the investment banking group, where uh, we've built an entire um, format where we meet every month for two hours, and we have a rotating schedule of 10 areas of best practices that we're covering. And the level of interest and engagement is just huge. And so um, I, I'm seeing it both within Stonehaven, I'm seeing in other kind of communities I'm, I'm part of or helping lead. And um, yeah, everyone kind of leans in. I think there's a big shared experience. And um, I think it can be sometimes without a community, it can be lonely building a business. Um, and you're, you feel like you're the only one on the front lines. And to feel like um, you might be alone per day, but, you know, there's people that you come back to and commiserate and also kind of figure out where to, to build additional value or how to solve problems you haven't solved for before is constant. Um, I mean, I find like when I moderate one of those calls i mean the number of takeaways that people have where they say hey let's connect offline i mean it, it generates like 10 plus calls that spin off of one call um because people want to like connect offline um so it's, it's really it. interesting that's the that's the magic right that is that is understanding again that you can you can be this like this hub this place where people can collect learn share learn and then go beyond. That's like the most fantastic thing as you watch that occur. 
And, you know, I, <laughs> I actually worked with a bunch of folks. We did like competitive, uh, so I work in, 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 you know, technology and yeah. we would have people that are in competition. So the funny thing is you end up sort of bumping into like what the, what the sales teams will treat as sort of a, a competitor, the product marketers and technical marketers are sort of trapped in this thing of like, well, I want to talk up our solution without talking down the, the competitive solution. Cause that's really how we win It's like, how do we, you don't win a deal by talking down the competitor. You, you say, what's the solution that, what's the problem that you as a customer have, how have we got a differentiated solution that, that can give you that outcome that you desire. And sure. what I ended up having was talking with all these people who were perceived competitors. And I created a little group and we called it the New Day Co-op. For fans of The Wire, they'll know what that's all about. But <laughs> it's this sure. idea that you get people that are in literally head-to-head -head competition in the market, but yet we could share insights and ideas with each other, mostly so that we wouldn't look like we're competing. It yeah, I think better for the I think customer. part of the, that's interesting. I think, I think part of what also makes it work in our environment is it's not a winner-take-all environment. And what I mean by that, for example, is... If you're a wealth advisor, I think it is a more of a winner take all environment with a, a single prospect. So, right, if you have one high net worth individual, only one advisor is really going to win that business. Whereas in our world, you know, if you're dealing with a billion dollar plus institutional investor, many, many different people can engage with the same investor and try to earn 1% of their entire balance sheet with things that deal flow they show them. And so, there can be many winners with the same. Um, institutional investor. And similarly with deals, um, say, for example, you're out raising a real estate fund. If somebody can help you raise capital, that actually can help you build momentum for that mandate, where, for example, say you start with a the mandate, they're 100 million, you're going to run into certain institutional allocators who say, we don't really allocate till this manager hits this assets under management threshold. And if somebody else can help you achieve that threshold, it's actually accretive to your work. And so I think that's where there might be competition to who might win that original client. But the reality is, if we're talking about real estate, there's thousands of operators in real estate. The reality is you're more, um, we might represent 50 real estate operators. So we're still like less than you know 1% of the entire real estate world we're working with. So if you can collaborate and there's really win-wins um, that can be great. And I think where we've tried to tackle it, because I think the idea of collaboration is not a new one um, in our space. The challenge is, is taking things out of these manual Excel processes, you know, where everything is kind of a very um, fragmented information flow and building all those workflows into one vertically integrated tech stack that people are operating on and then giving people the confidence that they're operating under the same kind of foundation from a regulatory perspective, legal perspective, due diligence perspective, and that there's some accountability within the community. Um, and that there's an ultimate central team at Stonehaven that helps kind of govern it. I think it builds more of an architecture around it that then helps uh, lubricate the the dynamics of that, that, uh, that community. So the, what I always see is like, so my sport of choice uh, is cycling. And it's a very interesting thing because people don't, they don't understand the adversarial yet collective goal behavior of the way a Peloton works. And it's, 
sort of that old African proverb of, you know, we, we go, we can go farther and faster together than we can as an individual. And so we do is like, as a Peloton, as a group of competitive teams, going to one mile from the from the finish line, we're all going together where our goal is to all arrive together, and then release our fiercest competitor as close to the line as possible. And that really is what you're doing. You're allowing everybody to collectively get to the real competitive differentiator faster so that they can release their sprinter. Their, what's their secret sauce as an organization, whether it's a, a just relationship management, whether mm. it's a true, like they've got some other algo, algo that's hiding behind the scenes that they're able to do more with. But if we can collectively get closer to the finish line where the true differentiation stands out, everybody wins. You don't win by trying to destroy each other at the start line. That's, it's 100%. not how it works. So, so two things, so two things here. First of all, I don't think you know this about me. It's not on my LinkedIn profile, but I grew up as a hardcore competitive cyclist. I used to race 80 races a year. So I, I, I nice. love to talk cycling with you. <laughs> I, I saw that somewhere online about you, that you were a cyclist. And I actually rode my, I know you were talking about a Peloton of riders, but I rode my Peloton this morning. Um, nice. and, uh, and two, I think actually an analogy more so than cycling. So cycling does ultimately still have kind of one winner, even if people are in teams. I think it's more like hunting like a pack in a pack and um, because you can go out and hunt. And in theory, if you were not going to collaborate with each other, one person's win would hurt your you know, chances of winning. But if you actually are hunting in a pack, you can win, you know, way more. I mean, this is more of a uh, uh, old school uh, hunting that we really don't do today. But like um, if you do think of like a group hunting together, they're going to have a lot more ability to triangulate and win more as a, as a group than, than flying solo. Um, but I think I, I love cycling. Though. I mean, I think cycling uh, helped build some of my DNA of who I am today. Actually, I was a hardcore road racer from probably the age of 12 in Colorado growing up and then eventually got into mountain biking Um uh, well, at first I just trained uh, as a mountain biker and then I eventually raced as a mountain biker. And then in the fall, I got into cyclocross and it was a year round affair for me, that and lacrosse. So, nice. um, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, it's funny that, that, you know, my, my foray into cycling was out of pure, I lived in the middle of nowhere and the only way I could get around because I didn't have a license or a car was like sort of to ride my bike. And as a kid, it would like ride a BMX around. And it was so funny that what just was a necessity for me grew to be this thing where people were like, I don't get how you can, like, how do you, how do you ride so far when I started actually like training for it? And it was hilarious that to me, it was just like, well, I never thought about it that way. I never thought of like, I'm going to ride far. It's just like, I just kind of had this personal, I know I can ride this far. Let me see if I can ride farther. And because it was necessity, it never seemed odd to start. You know, my, for me, the baseline yeah. was I've got to ride 10 kilometers to go meet my friend on a BMX. And then we would ride around these crazy dirt ramps for like four hours. And then I would ride back again. And it was like, you know, it was never thinking about training load and optimal eating. It was just like, I got to get to my buddy Jack's house and we're going to go mess around on the ramps. <laughs> so that when I actually started training, I had this 
I was effectively broken in the best way because I never mm -hmm. saw it as like a barrier. I never saw that like this is how much I, I should think about calorie burn and whatever. Just like we talked about before, like by not having a fixed limit mm -hmm. baked in, I never I was able to immediately get to further than a lot of people because I didn't see that friction. I didn't see that barrier. Uh, it was just it didn't make sense to me that there was a barrier. I was like, huh. Well, you, just you know, to tie, to tie two things together. So you mentioned you grew up dyslexic. Um, so did I. And um, with other uh, fun learning disabilities as well. And I think that when I got into cycling was also when I was kind of just getting through um, addressing some of those core learning disabilities. And I think what cycling gave me was this outlet to no one could control how much you trained, what you would do. It was up to you. And so I took it pretty much as an OCD behavior to train like an animal. I mean, I, from the age of like 14, I was riding 200 miles a week year round um, and racing probably three to four days a week during the uh, spring through summer. And it was this kind of like outlet to just put everything you have into one kind of sport and to push your body's limit to an absolute extreme. And I think later in life, it taught me a lot of grit and just you know, knowing how to overcome, I mean, a lot of cycling in the end is overcoming pain barriers. I mean, you're literally neck and neck, <laughs> neck and neck with somebody for like two hours straight. And it comes down to like three second win at the end. And that three seconds is quite often like who can overcome the biggest pain barrier for the sustained period of time. And then, you know, there's a lot of other strategy to it and other things like that. But I think that pushing, which is quite different than like endurance sports, I think do teach you a different thing than in team sports. And I also had team sports in lacrosse and other sports I played and later coached as well. Um, but I think it was um, just really formative for me. And I think it also taught me just how you can invest so much into yourself and see tangible results. Um, like I remember when I was about 14 and I was about to go in this race, um, it was uh, in Boulder. It was a five part series race. And it was the biggest juniors race in the, in the country at the time called the Red Zinger Classic. And I remember asking the people in the bike shop, like, how fast do these kids go? So I really had only done a couple of races. And they said, I remember him saying, like, they go 17, 18 miles an hour. And I thought, when I train, I always go 17, 18, sometimes 19. And I showed up thinking I was going to kick some butt. And I showed up, and these kids at my age of 14 were cranking at 23 miles an hour. And I was toasted. Um, I mean, I couldn't keep up with the pack. I mean, my goal at that point became to like, how long can I stay with the pack before I get dropped? Yeah. And that was so humbling that come next season, I was training like an animal. I was like, I can't lose that pack. And then I, you know, got further and further along to the point where I was competitive. Um, so that was really like a good training experience. And it was something where there was no one to blame but yourself. I mean, if you're a little 14 year old playing soccer and you lose the game, it's not clear that you caused the team to lose the game, right? If you're cycling and you can't keep up, there's no one to look at but yourself. And so I think that was like a real training exercise for me that taught me a lot in life uh, for later. Yeah, there's there's two really important pieces that I, that will say three really. Number one is people always ask me, what's the difference between a good cyclist and a great cyclist? I said pain management, like in pain <laughs> threshold management. That's sure. really what it is. Like there's a point where you're going to be at your limit, 
and so will that other person. And so you just have to choose which one of you is going to be able to surpass the limit longer, uh, farther. But really this idea of, you know, we hear it all the time as a, it sounds like a goofy sports analogy, but you don't love winning, you hate losing. And for me, that was that thing, like that what inspired me was not that I was aiming for a top 10 result, was I was, don't don't lose the wheel. Like, and I remember going to my first group ride and one of the fellows I was training with, you know, he's like, train a bunch and then you'll be ready for a group ride. And so then that Saturday I went out for a group ride. I'd never trained. Like, I'm just like, I gotta, I just gotta see what it's like. And he's like, this, you're, you can't just do that. You've got to like train. And so I got out and we ended up probably about 60 kilometers in, we head into these rolling hills. And so, I mean, I was baked and I was <laughs> definitely bonking. Everything was, everything was going sideways. And this, you know, they could tell I was like pedaling downhill to keep on the wheel and that's that's the first sign of trouble you're like oh yeah this this kid's this kid's suffering you know i say this kid i was like you know 28 whatever and when i started doing competitive okay, yeah. like and it was so funny that the the guy who's the the head of the club and and he was actually a former polish national uh team rider and he had mm -hmm. a club in in toronto and he's he would he i feel his hand on my back and he's riding beside me helping me up the hill and he says don't Whatever you do, don't lose the wheel. Because <laughs> he knew, like, and like, sure enough, the set two hills later, I lost the wheel and I was riding home alone. But that inspired me to come back the next day. And they're like, hey, you're back. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I got to figure this thing out. And I remember the first person that kind of helped me that way too, um, up a hill. And I remember when I was maybe like 17, there was a situation where I was going up a hill and there was somebody struggling and I started helping push them up up the hill too and it felt like a, a pride moment where you're like i've now transitioned to the person from the person who needed help to the person who's giving help um <laughs> it was by the way i probably didn't even have the energy to give that person it was probably a pride thing like wanting to be that person um but i still remember that too um that, yeah. that in itself is it's i've done some i've done some great adventure races right if, if we think about that the way you describe that right that does it is there's a lot buried inside that feeling right that you i don't know that i can do this so you know people ask how do i describe parenting uh, i said parenting <laughs> is making sure that your kids know that everything's going to be okay when you're not sure that it is very good point we are transitioned to parenting that, that great topic yeah i have an 11 year old uh daughter and a 13 year old son um so i i, I definitely recognize the behavioral pattern you're referring to there. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to that. So there's, there's definitely something, you know, obviously, you know, cycling was a part of your youth. I'd say community had to be something in there. What was the what was your first exposure to a thing that you would eventually learn was actually a community? That's a great question. Um, well, I I don't tend to think of this as far as like a, a drawn analogy to, to Stonehaven, but I think I grew up with a brother who, by the way, has become uh, a my best friend and and be an awesome dad and c an awesome entrepreneur himself. But basically, uh, my parents were divorced, and both of our uh, basements had both ping pong tables. Uh, both my dad's basement and my mom's basement had both a ping pong table and a pool table. 
and they both were walkout basements and they became kind of the go-to place for everyone to gather. Um, and, and a lot of mischief happened in those two places. So I think that was kind of a fun place. And, and my brother, who's uh, two and a half years younger, we were constantly kind of merging uh, our two worlds. And I think that was a, a definite part of it. But I think as I kind of went further along in my career, um, gosh, I, I think that I I was always amongst my team because I started the company when I was 23. I was always the the young guy um, for quite a long time. And um, I kind of had to build a team around me and inspire a level of confidence with people who are usually older than me. Um, and so I think that was a real formative experience where um, I had to show up every day kind of um, usually I think people in their 20s don't have to show up as much um, pretending to know everything or having that conviction um, of driving the bus with the team. I think that was something that was a real early thing. And, and I think really what helped me too in that was building some amazing colleagues and partners. And I think today, as I look about kind of where, what's the center of that world, I have <clears throat> six awesome partners who are really at the core of what I've built um, and then the team surrounding them with about a 35 person overall team. And I think that's, uh, it starts there. And I think everything I do, I try to execute and think about and strategize with that core and then how that reverberates out across our ecosystem. And so one of my partners, Steven's been with me for 15 years. Mark's been with me for uh, 10 years. And then I have uh, my CTO, Alex, and other people who've been with me, uh, Chris and Brittany, um, uh, and, and now Brian are all kind of in the last couple of years has built this core. And so as I think about kind of our community, I always think about like starting there um, because everything starts with them and then their teams that they then manage. And then what they do then manages, it reverberates out across the broader ecosystem. So that's kind of a way of, of simplified and thinking about things is focus on your core team and that community kind of really helps uh, do everything. And then I've, I've really also tried to build repeatability. So for example, every quarter we host an in-person event and we also, we work remote now and we also do it, we do a two-day onsite or offsite, I should say, um, of just the internal team. And then we end it with an awesome community event, usually between 50 and hundred people. And just having that like repeatability of, of the way in which we get together um, makes it much easier to have community because you don't have to think about it all the time. You know, every quarter I'm going to be with them. We're going to have certain formats. We do things. And then similarly, even like in a more micro level, I start every single week with a, a two hour long uh, management team. And it starts off with just personal updates. So everyone goes around and does personal updates for the first 15 minutes and kind of just making sure you're kind of in sync with your core team um, on what's going on. Um, and then having monthly affiliate partner calls is an example where every month there's always a pattern on the first Monday of every month that there's a call. Um, so I think a lot of like what community building for me too has been like, how do you systematically create repeating formats to kind of engage with your people where you don't have to think about it. You're going to be back engaged with them on a recurring basis just because it's, there's a recurring event in your calendar that makes it happen. Um, so I think I've tried to like think about that way because I think it's hard to build community if you're always trying to reinvent the wheel as far as how do you find people and and also people who are members of that community like that. They know that like if I connected with you at the spring event in Greenwich, 
I'm going to see you again in the fall event in New York City um, or other kind of patterns like that. And so they kind of invest more in those relationships because there's some repeatability to, to seeing that. It is a, you know, to pull from the cycling analogy, because now sure. I know I can definitely comfortably do that. It is the idea that you can be both an individual performer and a team performer. And it's the combination of that, which makes you a particularly good colleague, you know, and I, I always treat it like, I used to always say to people, I'm not the, I'm not a type A personality. I'm not the alpha. I've got type A, I would say I'm type A minus, uh, because I don't need to win but I do like to be a high performer. And I guess in the end, nowadays we call it sort of a sigma rather than alpha beta. So sigma is meant to be the middle where they have, you know, tendencies of high performers, but aren't seeking attention and, and winning. And I would, I used to call it being a good domestique for technologists. Mm. Yep. You know, what can I do? How can I carry water for the team so that I, my commitment and my skills are, can affect the well-being and, and the performance of others. And in doing that, I was still automatically like, if you drop me in a room of 20 people, within 45 minutes, I'll have them in a circle. I'll have like, I'll collectively start to pull people into small communities. Like I naturally have this sort of shepherd, you know, sheepdog type of thing that I do, even across groups that are disparate, that don't have things in common. I'm like, I can see commonalities that they can't. And so I find like, oh, you should, you should connect with these people. And I was able to kind of create almost like an Olympic ring type of thing where I could find this diagram, Venn diagram crossover of like, these people have something in common. You know, sure. this one's a jock, this one's a nerd, but they both, they both love, you know, canoeing, you know, and like, okay, cool. We can merge those two communities through that, that connection. I create, find that link and then that was sort of my superpower. And you definitely seem to have that same thing where I've approached it. There's a lot of commonality. People don't. Yeah, there's a lot of commonality. I think I viewed it as part of my job <clears throat> is to be the tip of the spear on both offense and the back of the line on defense. And so I'm always trying to build around my team of saying, how can I be most front forward on the front line of helping kind of whatever it is that's most important. Um, and so I think that I always sort of build my team around me to say, I'm gonna enable every single person on my team. And then where can I be the most high value add where I can do deep dives with them? Um, but I think it's a lot about enablement. I mean, I've been trying to push my team to each of the, the leaders across our team to become bigger and better leaders. Um, but then say like, whatever is the biggest problem or the biggest opportunity facing the company, or usually it's not one, it's, it's many, um, where can I inject myself and push the hardest, um, but then be able to step back and enable them to step back into the driver's seat or, or drive with them. Um, so I think that's been um, understanding that when you're running over a hundred person organization, um, it's not about kind of just what you can do as an individual producer, but it's like, what can you enable? But sometimes I think giving people that enablement is showing them that you have their back at the front of the line um, when the most important things come up. Um, I think it's also just kind of related to this, but not quite. I would say another characteristic I think that's important is I think a lot of people, when they lead, they think it's all about high level kind of leadership. I found it's also super important to be really technical. And I know you actually are a very technical kind of writer. And so 
I've also really embraced living in the guts of the organization and like getting down to the micro kind of elements of how our workflows work and how we're running things and how our data flows. And so I think you have to have that ability to be both kind of high level uh, and low uh, and, and dive low onto certain topics or deep dive into certain topics. And so um, I think that's when somebody's facing a complex problem, it's also how do you sit down with them and solve that complex problem? Um, that's where I've been trying to like spend my time the most. And then the, then the question is, what's the highest leverage activity of all these things you could do? I think time management's the hardest thing to figure out where to inject, you know, when there's 200 plus clients and, you know, hundred affiliates and, um, you know, 15 person technology data team, there's infinite number of things to work on and solve. Um, and so then it kind of comes down to organizational skills to a large degree. Um, that, and, that's uh, probably the biggest barrier to so many things, but uh, your that ability to be like work at, you know, operate and ultimately aim for a meta macro level type of result. But the only way for you to enact true first principles thinking is you have to be aware of what's the constraints, right? To go to sort of the gold rat methodology of, right? Like you have to find the constraint and then get rid of that constraint and then towards that goal. And then ultimately, then you just move to the next constraint. What's the next constraint? And to be able to, to navigate through that, if you, if you don't understand at the nano micro level what's going on, you don't have to be able to do the task, but you have to be able to be acutely aware of the importance of that task. And then focus on that, like, just get I think it's, that constraint. I think you bring up a good point. And actually, I think just on a, on a bigger macro level perspective, I think what's going on in the, in the venture capital world and the growth world is shifting because I think most venture funded businesses have lacked most constraints um, because money can solve and address most constraints when you have a very oh, large funded to. business. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, clearly you can still not have product market fit or other things, but a lot of problems can be solved with lots of money. Um, like you're not having enough sales, like double your sales team, right? If you have an infinite money, um, you can, you can, that doesn't actually solve it in the end. Your unit economics might not work. And I think we're shifting now um, very rapidly have been shifting to a world of much more resource constrained businesses. Um, and I think that uh, a lot more innovation comes out of this kind of resource constrained environment. And we're, we're probably in a space right now where um, I've read that four out of five businesses on uh, venture funded businesses have less than 12 months of runway right now. Um, and so we're probably going to face a real uh, tidal wave of um, companies that don't make it and others that find ways to be very resource constrained and, and innovate um, through this time period and really succeed. And so I think that's that's a real challenge. Um, we've always been bootstrapped, meaning we've not raised any outside capital that we will probably at some point this year. I think that's been something that we've had to think that way of how to do more with less and what is the absolute highest ROI project that quite often can solve like more than one problem. Like how can we create value for people on our platform while streamlining um, workflows on our side that means we can do more to support more clients with less resources. And quite often that's like building software workflows or processes or knowledge or or better user interfaces or, or just having a different framework for how you think about deals um, or, you know, reshifting energy as to 
which people and how you invest into the resources into your company. Um, so I think that that ability to be resource constrained is is as important now as it ever has been um, for growth companies. Well, I, and I, yeah, the the last uh, team that I worked with, uh, it was amazing that we we looked at it and we had a very you know we also always would say we have an agile team which is a nice way of saying like under underfunded and uh, overworked but what it made you do was really constantly think of is what i'm doing important am i spending my time and money in the right way and what happened was then when we did grow as a team we we were able to scale that culture of mm -hmm. that as we grew. And the moment, if we got too big too quickly, that escaped, right? All of a sudden you would hire a specialist and mm -hmm. they were brought in to be a specialist. But what ended up happening was our team, we constantly moved people in and out. And it was, it was a tough challenge because you would find these high performers that were great generalists. They would find a thing they're good at and they would move up to the next level. And that may or may not be within the team but yep. it was the proudest thing to be able to do. And, and I had great leadership that said, okay, right. How do we fill that spot? Right. And then, so what we do, we would find somebody else that we were, that they were high performers, but they were generalists. And then we allowed them to sort of self-select into a specialization. And by always saying like, let's not grow to 40 people in this team, let's stay at 20. It, it just forced us to always think are we doing the right thing right now? Yeah, I've always preferred to build people on our team or like hire um, people who have a lot of specific skills, but are they're really like a general athlete from a business perspective and that want to level up to the next level. So like take my uh, my CFO who was a controller at MOLA. So MOLA, he was a controller at a billion dollar kind of division of an investment bank, but wanted to be the CFO. Um, giving him that opportunity or giving uh, my CTO who'd been a technical architect within a consulting organization who wanted that next step CTO position or working with my partner, Steven, to become like a real world-class uh, CCO or my partner, Mark, he'd never been a chief growth officer, but he has been through multiple iterations of kind of building our firm. And when the opportunity came up, he was looking for the challenge. And so we kind of invented the role together and built it together. Um, and, you know, Brittany Boyd on our team, on the partner success team, she had been doing a lot of training and other things um, at prior organizations, but really running a full division um, of partner success was a new kind of thing for her. And similar with Brian, Brian on my team who runs mandate management, he really was <clears throat> excellent at due diligence uh, working at GIC, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and before that Blackstone, um, but giving him the, the autonomy to build and manage a full mandate management team of five plus people um, where he's running all contracting due diligence at speed, you know, running um, onboarding over a hundred clients a year. But basically the, the commonality of amongst a lot of our management team has been that they have not done this role before or exactly in its current um, capacity. I think that a lot of companies that are building that aren't resource constrained they hire the, the CFO who's already been a CFO, the CTO that's already been a CTO, et cetera. I think there's a lot more. I, I like working with a team that has a lot to prove. You know, everyone wants to prove that they can kick ass in their role. 
And that's, that's more fun. And that also gives me the ability, look, I'm also, uh, you know, all founders are, uh, or most founders in, in this situation are our first time CEOs. I'm a first time CEO. I've been a, a first time CEO for a long time. Uh, now, I think it's, I've never been to see at this level. Um, and I think so all of us are kind of playing at a level of game that we've never played before. And the excitement of doing that, I think, is part of the fun of it. Um, but also doing it with resource constraints means that there's requires a lot of like constant innovation um, and, and prioritization that I think that's, I think, a thing that you're going to see everywhere. And I think you're seeing it across a lot of the rifts that are occurring across growth, growth companies and non-growth non companies right now, too. I think what you're seeing is a lot of the middle management being hollowed out and you're seeing kind of a bifurcation, much more emphasis on the producers, individual producers. I mean, if you look at Elon Musk, when he took over Twitter, one of the first things he looked at with developers is who's deployed code in the last few months. And he found that almost half the developers had never de had not deployed code. And the reason why is because there was such an emphasis on being an individual contributor was one step in the ladder of your career growth, but the ultimate success was becoming a manager. And people, there too many people that were managing and not enough people that were actually building. And so I think there's a lot of that commonality, you know, going across both tech, but also other industries, whether it's a FedEx or other companies, they're doing the same thing. Um, and so I think building a team that's still very execution focused is, um, and still is very in the weeds of execution while managing a team, I think is really important today. And I think that being on the front lines um, enables people to be more in touch with what the needs of the organization are. Yeah, it was, I, the, the book that I give to every one of my new team members that joined the company is Legacy by James Kerr. And it talks about the New Zealand All Blacks and their sort of culture of how they approach things. And it had been given to me by my CMO at my last company. And it was one of those ones where you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm reading our story right here. Like, and to be able to map it in, and especially to use, you know, obviously the sports analogies are often inspiring, but there's so many things that we see in this idea of like competitive behavior in a very human yet also scientific field, right? Ultimately there's, there's science to how we do performance, but so that we can, we can look at it at that. There's a data layer. There's a, there are algorithmic ways to represent, I mean, like Billy Bean and, and the Moneyball method sort of proved that there were things there, but it wasn't the be all end all. It was like, how do you empower the human aspect? How do you make the, the human piece, the differentiator, but sort of get rid of the cruft, right? How do we systematize as much as we can, but when it all comes down to it, who are the people that you would choose that if you said, okay, if, if all the budget went away, how would we solve this problem? And immediately just like, okay, all right, everybody grab, you know, grab some paper. Let's, let's, let's figure this out. Right. And you, you just get to work and it's a real thing to find a group of people that you have this incredibly high trust with that you just know when it all comes down that, you know, I would see my CEO, my CMO, my COO, like all the executive team, we had a huge company event with customers and everything. And at the end, we sent everybody off to the restaurant to get ready for the big dinner and who was stacking the chairs in the office, but the executive team. <laughs> and like it, everything was counter to what you would imagine that it would be, you know, like we still was joke, what's the favorite 
my favorite Twitter handle was the GS elevator, the Goldman Sachs elevator. And it was like sure. supposed to be like blank fine, just making fun of things. And this idea of like having a separate existence from, from the plebes. <laughs> and and yeah. I worked around a team that, that didn't have that. that and I've always had that as a kid, like, and I, through my, when I worked at, I worked at Sun Life and I worked at Raymond James, I worked at these big, huge firms and Manulife. And I treated the person in the mailroom with the same respect that I did the CEO. And I had no sense of limitation on how I could help either. And I had no separation of the understanding of the performance and the value I could by helping each person out and to create a team of people that have that mentality is uh, it's a challenge, but boy, when you do it, you realize you over time get really good at spotting people that you say, I've got a problem. How would you solve it? Not like, what have you done? Who have you worked for? What is your schooling? I, that's super important. A lot of things. But in the end, I say like, if you've got, here's a, a, here's a problem. How would you approach solving this problem? And that, the methodology is way more important to me than the outcome. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, um, I I agree, and um, I think that's where we try to focus a lot of our time and energy as well. Is is kind of and actually part of the most complex problems are interdepartmental kind of things. So, for example, you're building um, reg tech into the software that ties into how mandates are onboarded. So it involves your technology team, your compliance team, your mandate team, and and then there's resource constraints added on top of it. And how do you kind of bring all those in? So that's the kind of place where I think I, I like to operate it is, is where those kind of like interdepartmental level relationships or um, or how to prioritize tech build out, for example, because there's infinite number of, of things we can solve for. And so ultimately there's only certain number of things that can be the number one priority. Um, but I think taking a step back, though, from all these kind of dynamics we're talking about in a team, I think ultimately the, the desire to be part of a kind of a tribe, a group that's working together towards a common goal is, is a very strong force. Um, and I think kind of building that commonality is really important. And I think especially doing that in a time of remote work where we're, we're a remote first company. And so building that kind of connectiveness, um, I think, is is not as easy today. Um, but absolutely can be achieved. Uh, we've we've done a lot to kind of work to make that happen. Yeah, and I mean, and it comes in your case where that that mentality and that that drive and that desire to operate and and find the right community, the right people that will build a tribe like that. It's playing out both inside your company and in your customer community and in your affiliate community, right? To, so that's what I. I, that's why I adored the the our chance to have a discussion is like this is a thing like we I could we could go another three hours and we could talk sure. about the 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 market in general and I I'll, I'm going to steal some more time in future where we can kind of dive into what the year ahead is looking like because I I don't want to I don't want to spend five minutes on that because there's so much we could unpack on it but for me 100%. it was super important to kind of go through that and and I am. Uh, I'm long team Stonehaven and uh, team Thank you, Eric. Frank, you know, you great to meet you too, Erica in person, or I guess over zoom this way. I think it's, yeah. it's been really a great way to connect and really kind of enjoyed learning about uh, your journey too. first kind of researching you before this, this call and then um, meeting you in person. It's been a great opportunity for me. I'd love to find ways to, to remain in touch and help each other. 
For sure. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I appreciate that. And, and I, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. And hopefully people I always hope that people enjoy this as much as I do, because I walk away from these <laughs> discussions. I'm like fired up. I got to go, you know, do a, do a bunch of things. And I'm, I'm excited by it. And uh, it really makes me, you know, just every time I get a chance to do this, I get to learn like selfishly. That's why I started the podcast. I'm like, I get to talk with amazing people and learn and and start to see like and i hear about groups like ypo and eo my friend rory who's actually been on my podcast twice and and he and i've done a lot of work together uh, rory wheeler he does uh you know helping people with with human engagement uh and everything from like sales training but the funny thing is how he does it is uh he's a he's a magician so he does all these like fun things where he does like events and and you know crowd gathering and and but in the end, he actually and he works with YPO. So it was a hilarious like the way that things come together. And I that's why I think through finding people with that that same mentality where we ultimately become the connective tissue to communities between YPO, your team, you know, folks like Rory, folks like myself, folks like, you know, Kitcaster, all these people that you're like, the next time you see somebody who's at whatever phase of growth, you could say like, hey, you know, how are you handling this problem? You're like, oh, I've got a, I've got a person that I would recommend and, and that we can all move faster together as a as a Peloton. It's interesting that we spent so much time on community. I really had no idea where we'd focus. You never do in kind of a, a wide ranging conversation because it could have gone 15 other directions or market trends <laughs> or other things. But exactly. that's been fun to kind of focus on that topic with you. So I'm sure there's a lot of other topics we could focus on, too. For sure, yeah, and there's a ton more, and uh, and we will we will definitely revisit this. Um, and like I said, I I only wish I had more time. I gotta, if it wasn't for this whole like us running successful, you know, growing companies, we could just like spend all day talking like this. But it's been it's been great. So, you know, David, for people that do want to connect with you, obviously we talked. LinkedIn's a good way, um, and and I'll have links to the Stonehaven website. Uh, and yeah, I mean you're. You're solving a very challenging problem in a very interesting and effective way. I don't want to say unique. I learned this from my, the founder of my last company. He says, people would say, like, we solve this problem in a unique way, you know, and he would eventually come out to that person and said, did you have a lot of friends in school? And it's so funny to watch this question and answer. And, and you can see them sort of like trying to figure out what he's asking. And they're like, yeah, like the tentativeness of this answer. And he says, was it because you were unique? <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> no. He goes, then don't talk about our solution as being unique. Unique's not a differentiator. Well, look, we would welcome the opportunity to, to open dialogues with anyone who's in the kind of investment banking, placement agent space, companies looking to raise money or, or sell or any kind of other kind of capital market transaction. And of course, investors looking for opportunities where we're highly active. And so reach out, um, find me on LinkedIn, David Frank, um, or uh, uh, you can also connect with us off our website. So look forward to uh, connecting with anyone who's interested in talking. And Eric, we'll uh, look forward to staying in touch and, and For hopefully sure. doing this again. Yeah. This has been great. And uh, yeah, a real blast. So David Frank, thank you very much. I am genuinely better right now for having had this discussion and like i said i the only thing i wish is we had we could have gone into others but i think it was important that we kind of we we went you know deep in this because this is helpful especially right now we're in a market where people need to be thinking what's the right way to solve a problem 
and and especially when we have to be like very very careful in how we put money and time into those that like those resources are going to be rare and uh, this rarefied air is something we have to preserve to be able to last through 23. So yeah, we'll grab some time. We'll talk about macroeconomics, the craziness of the of the financial world, and uh, a lot more. But with that, David Frank, Stonehaven LLC, fantastic. Love what your team is doing and how you're solving the problem. So with that, thank you, thank Eric. Thank you very much.